Hello, everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a graduate student in education. And with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Today, we're going to break from our usual template. And instead of looking at philosophical abstractions and attempting to extrapolate meaning from them, we're going to examine the life of a philosopher, his ideas, and how they affect the world. I look forward to sprinkling in many of these episodes over time, and our first subject is a titan in the field. Considered by many the creator of the thesis, and someone who understood philosophy comprehensively, today we examine George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Alright, so um, you and I have talked about doing some of these episodes in the past, kind of looking at um, specific philosophers, and I think it'll be good because um, it... I think doing these separate series, rather than doing a, a, a consecutive series based on a school of philosophy or a philosopher or um, a certain pantheon of gods, I think it would be kind of fun to just sort of sprinkle them in throughout time, kind of give the the, yeah. the podcast a little bit of um, a little bit of variety. Um, so this will be our first time looking at a philosopher, and um, you know we're not starting with Plato or Aristotle or you know <laughs> Confucius or you know so. Some people might not be um, real familiar with with Hegel. I know that you know I'm I'm definitely not as familiar with his stuff as with um, the aforementioned philosophers. So yes, yes. Um, but as I did some research for the show, I I started to think, man, this guy is he's one of the most interesting characters in the. Yeah, he's one of the giants. He, yeah, yes. for sure. So um, we'll kind of we'll kind of go through and look at him, and then uh, you know it it'll follow a similar format. You know, we'll look at the the formative aspects of the philosopher and then um, kind of the essence of his philosophy. And then we'll sort of try to um, apply some of his ideas to, you know, the world that we currently live in. Yeah. yeah. So starting with the formative, is there any biographical or contextual factors about Hegel we should know about before we get into it? Um, well, yeah, he was, he, uh, I don't, I want to sound stereotypical, but he's a relatively humble background. Uh, you and I often talk about religion and such, and he was, a, he was born into a Protestant family. Um, he went to a seminary. Uh, he met another, he met a uh, it's one of those times where, one of those moments where things happen where occasionally you'll get a cluster of people all in the same place at the same time. So when he went to the cemetery, he met the poet Holderlin, and they met uh, Schelling, who was also a, a philosopher. And so you start having all kinds of discussions, and he ended up doing his doctorate in philosophy. Um, and then he ended up in a university uh, town, which was the place where Napoleon marched in. Uh, and and there's an artist who actually uh, did a, an imaginary painting of on the side of the street when Napoleon's riding his horse down the street. Uh, there's Hegel... Um, welcoming Napoleon. Uh, so he was somebody who, well, I think like the Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and, and the cluster of people, or I think of in World War II, the, all of these, uh, Roosevelt and Churchill and so on, all ending up in the same place at the same time. Uh, these things seem to happen sometimes. And so he, he has uh, people to, to bounce off of, in, in, a, in a sense. Uh, and and because of his 
view on history, which we'll get to, uh, some had difficulty with him because, uh, in that he seemed to be in support of, uh, if not dictators, then strong figures. Uh, but what his his views were more complicated than, than that would sound. Also, the, his books, if one tries to read them, I mean, this is serious academic reading, and and uh, so it's not something people are going to pick up and just uh, find their way through at first go. It's not that his language in translation in English is, is difficult. It's that it's seemingly so abstract that um, it, it takes a, a good a good think um, because he is talking about large forces rather than uh, microcosmic things. Yeah, yeah. And, um, he, a lot of his writing is the definition of, of complex because yeah. he's you know, as we'll get into a little bit later, his um, a big part of his thought is is combining, is sublating um, concepts, taking things yeah. that are apparently contradictory or you know opposed to one another, and attempting to meld them into a new a new understanding of of what he's talking about. And um, even saying it that way, you can imagine. Oh wow, that sounds like that would be sort of hard to understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's great. We we will the people who are listening to us, despite our efforts to make this, you know, not not make this a, a university classroom. Um, it's going to be complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, so we'll we'll go to pop culture as we usually do and try to find our models. Right. Right. Okay. So. Um, what are some of the primary things Hegel is known for? His uh, his theory of history, his his theory of art, which is related. Um, he he is known for uh, trying uh, to pull the uh, historical and artistic aesthetic uh, discussion away from uh, positivism or uh, materialism. Which we, I, I, the only thing that is real is that which we can see and touch and so on. Uh, more into an idealist uh, camp. Yeah, so thinking about him in the context of his lifetime, um, what people have to realize is sort of the philosophical um, sort of... Um, milieu of the time, which was that, you know, you had a lot of philosophy was focused around, like you said, materialism, you know, um, things that are concrete, but also on um, kind of delineating concepts. So, you know, separating, you know, polarizing things. And Heigl was very um, influenced by a lot of mystical sort of writings and like you mentioned he was he was a religious figure he was so grown up in a, yeah yeah right so he he was more thinking you know less about or, you know not less about but not of things in terms of just being materialistic like you were saying but what right. is um what is beyond the physical and and what and how do some of these things that that appear to be contradictory 
that that the philosophy of his time were saying were contradictory and identifying as um, distinct concepts. How did they maybe come from this uh, singular source? You know. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, to put it um, uh, in a nutshell, all right, he he was of the belief as um, a number of whole philosophical school is an idealism essentially uh, we don't have direct access uh, to uh, anything we don't perceive the world directly all our minds have access to is the ideas that we ourselves or others form about the world uh, which has led to cartoons and so on about somebody holding up a stone and dropping it on Heigl or any other number of philosophers' uh, feet and, and say, well, that's real, isn't it? Um, but you and I, before the show started, we're talking about virtual reality. Right. And, and this is why I think I, I think Heigl would uh, really, uh, and sometimes he's, this is the Americanization, this is the Britishism, he's Hegel, he's Heigl. Hegel is how I was always. So that's if I slip into that, then you'll forgive me. But I, um, the idea that uh, really all we have is virtual reality, right? Yeah, and like you said, you and I were talking before the show. Um, I got an Oculus for Christmas, um, virtual reality, and I've done virtual reality before, but on a on a cheaper um, platform, and um, you know, basically amounts to kind of. A, you know, a semi 3D environment where you're where you're doing something. The Oculus is a completely different thing. It's it's totally immersive. And as I was explaining to you, um, basically, my mind, you know, knows that it's a virtual reality, but the Oculus does a good, such a good job of tricking my other senses visually. You know, the auditory aspect of it, even the tactile experience, you know, sending buzzes to the controllers and things when you're, you're touching things, doing stuff that, um, you know, it's, it, it tricks the, the physical part of me into believing that I'm in a different world. And so that has huge philosophical implications for, you know, looking at like we were talking about um, a few weeks ago with the mind-body problem. Exactly. You know, if if you're a monist, you know, and you're thinking, okay, well, um, everything is just one. Well, then it would be hard to... It, virtual reality th sort of throws a, a wrench in that a little bit, you know, where it's like, okay, well, I, I logically know that this isn't the real world, yet my body is reacting... And parts of my brain are reacting as if it is, you know, uncontrollably outside of my control. I can't really, you know, things are some things in the real world are surprising me while I'm in this virtual world or, you know, I'm reacting in such a way I'm, I'm actually ducking or actually doing things yes. that um, I'm reacting to things that, quote, are not there, you know. Which but, very, as you say, it connects to what we were talking about a few weeks ago. It, 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 can you respond to something that isn't there? Absolutely. Can can your can your can your physical process, your metabolism, alter because of something that you see that is intangible? In yeah, you remember we talked about this uh, a while back when we did our show on nostalgia. Um, nostalgia. Yeah. People who experience nostalgia in cold weather environments, actually their physical body temperature raises, you know? Yeah. So um, the wonders of the human mind. Are, are <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking about um, things that, that Heigl's known for. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and one of those was was the Geist, right? <laughs> Yeah, the spirit of the times. The spirit of the times. Uh, There's another word, zeitgeist, that that gets so overused now, but but essentially it's a a development out of that. And of course, uh, Hegel Hegel was German, and so he, uh, so Geist is. So we're talking, this is the other thing, we're talking about the ideas of a person rendered in German and translated. For us, and whenever we go to a translation, we are already second, third, fourth handing ourselves in, in the hands of very competent and 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 dutifully uh, careful translators. Um, well, you know that that could take us back to religious sacred texts, but we won't need to go there right now. But the idea is that you're one step and then another step away from that original. Some things in a on a language can't be wholly translated into another. Mm-hmm. Right? We, 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 we stumble on that. So when we say that, uh, that the spirit of the times, uh, he's talking about history as a process. Okay. We can get that. Uh, but for him, individual mentality, is not important in that process, in in the in the sense that of uh, there's a dynamic that drives uh, historical events and the countering of those historical events that is contributed to by the collective. Uh, of, of the, but not any one individual. And and I don't I don't claim to be a master of of, of Hegel either. I just but this is these are some of the more common uh, things that one picks up in reading him in translation and in reading analysis of of him and and in hearing people's lectures of of him and so on. All right, and, and the Geist is kind of his um, his big idea, right? That's sort of the. I mean, he was he had his fingers in all aspects of philosophy, pretty much everything yeah. that you could. Yeah. Um, but his sort of his thoughts on history and, and the Geist were sort of his main um, main idea. So, and that's what we're going to focus on towards um, the latter part of the episode. Is there yeah. any other things that we should touch on about him before we get into that too far? Um, probably because these are all things that uh, I'm trying to, you know, put, find some connection to other things we've talked about. So Hegel was somebody we would call uh, um, a compatibilist from an ethics viewpoint, or uh, from he he didn't entirely believe in free will. He didn't entirely believe in determinism. Uh, there was this, this fusion of, of the two things. He um, he uh, didn't think that God was this completely outside factor, being what have you. Uh, but he also didn't think it was just what people say about God. It was more complicated. There was an infusion, um, uh, an organicism. Uh, and and this, of course, helped complicate in his time. Because remember, he, he was born uh, six years before the American Revolution began. 
um, and he lived into about 1830, 31. And, and so he was seeing a lot of historical events on a big scale, both in, in, in the, the, colony, the British colonies becoming the United States and then in France and, 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 and in, in a Germanic area. So um, this, I think, is, is he was trying to express the complexity of there's not just one thing that causes everything to happen. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's one of the things that makes him sort of difficult to talk about in some regard is because, you know, a lot of the philosophical ideas that we've talked about so far, you know, the way that we go about understanding them is by, you know, starting out with the main concept and breaking it down into sub-concepts and then exploring what makes them up. And Heidegger's whole philosophy kind of flies in the face of doing that, doing that. you know, you see, you know, it's more about, you know, he, like you said, it or is is well was he a determinist or an indeterminist well not not really well was yeah, he uh, yeah. you know was was he an atheist or a religious person well it's kind uh, of a bit more complicated than that yeah yeah well some some might call him ag- agnostic i uh people have wondered about that kind of thing for a written loads about that with him um uh, he, he 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 was fusing together things that heretofore had not been been fused, and so uh, the idea of of Geist is not just spirit, but of 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 mind, of of, um, of rationality, of even one might say logic. I'm going to jump to a pop cultural reference, but in in some sense, one could say that uh, if one ever was a star. Trek uh, experiencer of any kind, not not necessarily a fan, that uh, Vulcans would be some uh, a group that Heigl would say had pretty much arrived at the end of history. Uh, you know, the, because for him, history was the idea was that this, these dynamic processes counter uh, uh, something happens there's a counter to it something rebalances picture a ladder swinging back and forth in the wind when you're trying to uh finally achieve a balance and the balance might will he thought eventually be achieved when total uh, uh acceptance of logic and rationality the truth uh balance of the mind itself had been achieved yeah, and it really, um, it, he had some interesting ways of, of putting that. Um, I can't remember if we talked about it on the podcast or if it was a conversation you, had, you and I had outside of it the last <laughs> time we, we did the show, but we were, I was talking to you about an article where um, scientists were um, saying that the universe was simulating itself. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we talked about that. Okay. Yeah. yeah that was on the show. Um, so, you know, there, there's been theories floating around for a while now that our whole reality is actually a simulation that's been put in progress by an advanced alien species. Yes. Well, recently they've, they've done some, you know, physics experiments and they're, they're saying, well, you know what? It might actually make more sense that the universe is just sort of simulating itself in, into existence. Well, that's that's basically Heigl. Yeah, I mean, this is it's good that you've you've gone there because 
when he when he talks about the historical process, um, you know, he's he essentially, I think, was making the 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 point, huge point, that we have to understand history through the primary documents, the thinking of, of as presented by people of what they were thinking and why they were making the decisions they were making and so on. Uh, but that the difficulty with that is that you can't get caught up in the cult of personality and say, oh, well, I'm going to just sway to the thinking of this very powerful um, idea as espoused by a number of people. I have to try to understand how those ideas collectively led to a place where then a counter idea arose and then somehow those are pulled together. So the thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Um, but this is where um, what you mentioned a moment ago to me lends itself very interestingly because um, if, 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 and if, if the possibility is that we are, let's say we are a, a simulation, well, that would take an enormous set of uh, technical and uh, uh, logical and rational uh, powers to create such a thing. But what a way to try to figure out the historical process itself. What were people thinking? Why did the collective of people do this or do that? Well, gee, create a whole simulation in which you follow that through to see what happened. <laughs> right, and, and that's where we're, you know, 22 minutes into the show, we're finally starting to um, develop the the idea of what Heigl was about, which is, like we talked about, a very hard thing to conceptualize, but it kind of boils down to the thing within itself, right? His whole idea was he used um, life as, as a big metaphor for everything else in the universe. And, and, you know, one of those examples was if you have a child, right, let's say, we talked about Napoleon either let's, earlier. Let's say we have um, Napoleon as a child. Right? You can see Napoleon and you can examine um, what sort of factors have gone into the child Napoleon to that point. Who his parents were, what his education was, who his friends were, the country he lived in, the, his culture and that sort of thing. And then you can try to extrapolate what Napoleon will be in the future. Um, but it's never going to quite be accurate because he's going to run into new friends or new cultures or have different experiences that are going to kind of alter it. Yeah. So he's just sort of this constant work in progress. Um, and, and Heigl's view was that, that, that process is, is history, right? That, that work in progress kind of thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and for him, as I, best understand it his uh, the the manifestation of that that geist that spirit in any uh culturally located collective is going to be uh the document of the government itself uh the constitution because he, he was he was of the time when constitutions were beginning to be created um so he is, he's located in his own time because of that. But what he was showing us or exploring was asserting that the constitution of any 
given collect is the is the spirit of that particular nation, um, and and so uh, the written constitution is the the material uh, formulated, articulated, and therefore not complete uh, spirit of that particular group at that right. particular time. Yeah, so Heigl talked about circles within circles. You know, you had this, I, I talked about Napoleon as an individual and that sort of process. And what you're talking about is um, that same process, but in terms of a, of a nation state. Um, you know, again, like we were talking about, you can look at the historical context of the nation and then where the nation's at and you can extrapolate out. But the nation is kind of constantly making itself. Um, and, you know, in Heigl's view, you could take that all the way up to sort of the metaphysical plane. Like we were talking about yeah. earlier, you have yeah. the universe simulating itself. Well, in an interest, another interesting article this week I read. They were um, scientists were trying to determine if the universe is a fractal, right? Yeah. And so, <laughs> yep. the universe is a fractal is is that same circle within a circle idea, right? If the universe at a large scale looks like this, and the universe at a small scale looks at the same thing, that again is what Heigl's talking about. You know, if, if people are going through this process, and nation states are going through this process. And the whole universe is going through this process, then yeah, that, that sort of idea that he had of this, of life and, you know, these contextual factors and things growing towards, um, you know, a, an actual, um, state of completion or, you know, whatnot. It's kind of, um, it's, it's a really thought provoking. It is thought provoking. It's large, large scale. I mean, he he essentially was trying to 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 capture and explain the structure of philosophy, human rationality, and government <laughs> across time. That's a great big project, and that's that's what makes some of the things inaccessible. But but he did, you know, some people said, well, that they were, I think, misconstruing him to some extent as as uh, liking strongmen. No, he he's. He, the constitution of any individual nation is the spirit uh, manifested, and and it's going. It's a thesis. It's an arguable idea, and 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 he thought that one of the greatest crimes, greatest as in horrible, horrific crimes, is uh, any act that is taken by a tyrant or would be tyrant or a conqueror, which will stifle or render inert that constitution and he saw that happen he saw the, the swing so to speak of, of not only what was happening in uh i mean which he could look back on because as i said he was what six years old so it wasn't necessarily pondering on, uh, although he, he educated himself at a very young age but but he was seeing these swings from the from the monarchic constitutionalism or monarchy republic uh, to uh, an attempt at uh, a so-called liberal uh, constitution which then leads to the terrors in, in, in France and, and years of bloodshed and, and 
horror and paranoia and so on, which which then leads to something more of a balance, which which itself would he wouldn't argue was perfect. Uh, but the very fact that he's talking about a constitutional monarchy, he um, he wasn't um, as in support of tyrants. He was trying to put these two ideas together. Not unlike when we have a we've talked about this before, a democratic republic. <laughs> <laughs> Two antithetical things, really, in a number of ways, and, and stuck together. Right? Yeah. Are you are you going to give individual people a say in the government, or are they going to have representatives that you know that yeah. that choose for them? Well, you you can synthesize the two, and um, that's what that's what Hegel is about. So, like you were saying, um, you know, you could construe it as him, um, you know, like you said, liking dictators or something. But really, he's He's probably what he's saying is that you can't have one without the other, right? A, a, a monarchy and a democracy. You have a democracy because you had a monarchy, right? It's a reaction or a growth process, and you kind of swing back and forth between the two. Yeah. Did I have that right? Yeah. yeah, I think I think you do. And and this is where I, you know, I, I I always find myself being humbled by ridiculous things that I've said in the past. I remember being outraged by uh, Star Wars, uh, you know, <laughs> where where in one of these uh, sets of, of, of films, I, I believe it was this, the middle, the first of the middle, um, uh, you had an elected queen. <laughs> uh, yeah, right, and I said that's ridiculous. But I wasn't thinking about my 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 angle in the, in the sense that there is this attempt at there was in Lucas and you know in pop cultural fashion, but nonetheless, this this clashing notion <laughs> of that somehow existed up there on, on the screen. Uh, he he says that he believed that reason. Uh, is what governs the world, um, and and what governs history, but reason, uh, in all the process so far, has never been perfect or adhered to, um, without uh, great flaws, and and so, reasoning and argumentation, as we as we know, this takes us back to that. Is uh, I assert an arguable statement, and I offer uh, support for it. Perhaps that becomes realized in some kind of constitutional system. The very the conversations that, that, that deeply, emotively felt horrors that 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 people in in our own country have have experienced, uh, especially uh, race, emerges out of a problematic. Uh, if not dysfunction, then then incompleteness and 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 lack of vision because of locked in its time of of a constitution that, if it were completely static, would not allow for itself to be changed in our own cultural circumstances. But then we have amendments, don't we? But then we have forces where where we have. We can look at it now, and, and and if I think Hegel would be saying to us right now that if we have we are at a moment where we, if we can come to terms with the flaws of our own constitution and the the limits 
to the reason, limits primarily perhaps uh, uh, that occurred because of self-interest of the founders in their own context. And if we come to terms with that and re-see ourselves with fresher and honest eyes, honest meaning eye, the eyes of reason, what was really happening here, then we would be in the process of of of, of, a, of a synthesis, right? Um, so, so um, yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit because I'm not I'm not entirely clear on it. So I'm going to ask you some questions. Okay. Um, what about essentially Hegel and relativism? Was what were Hegel's views um, in a morality context? Um. You mean about the, the about the, the the beliefs of individuals, or the 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 result of the larger system? Yeah, let's let's start with the result of the larger system. So, I mean, we he talked about the, the prevailing of of logic and, and reason and this sort of thing. Um, did he believe yeah. that there was that there was a, a good or or bad sort of force, or was it just sort of this balance of logic? <laughs> He believed that there were bad actors. He wouldn't have used that phrase that way, but but uh, um, you know, tyrants and so on. Uh, he he uh, believed that people could look out after their self interest in 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 place of thinking about the larger good of the society. And so, in in some ways, I think there's a Kantian element there. Uh, but ultimately, I think Hegel was defaulting to the rightness of the entire system as opposed to the rightness of individuals within it. And that's how, again, why, why his, uh, his uh, ethics or what was right would be a larger picture rather than individual uh, individuals uh, having complete freedom and, and therefore being able to disrupt everything. Okay. Um, same question for for the logic, right? So, yeah. logic is he, he's not looking for logic um, on the individual level, but he's looking for the logic of the state as a whole. Yeah, yeah. Reason um, as the spirit of all the individuals melded together. You see, this is this uh, that Marx uh, took. Hegel's work and and was re uh, it was was shaping uh, Marx and Engels was shaping their theory based on that large scale picture. Um, uh, so uh, the rational, if the rational by itself, the rational alone is 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 the is the reality, uh, then you can categorize things rationally and so then you can then you uh, presumably uh, in, you can deal with uh, ethical violations with a complete reason um, now it sounds really good but how do you know <laughs> take a moment from our own historically located time right now um, what happened in Washington uh, the insurrection. Uh, how are they con 
constructing who actually went inside, who were actually the bad actors, who were actually people who were outside and not knowing necessarily what was going on on the inside, who were the people who were killing in their madness that that police officer of breaking windows, stealing things, putting their feet on desk. Well, now we've got all, unlike in Hankel's time, we've got visual record. Uh, in a sense, the the rioters, the insurrectionists, created their own historical record via cell phone and, and internet and, and Facebook and blah, blah, blah. So now that can be used and 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 must and and this is i think what 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 Heichel would say is uh, it must be looked at and used in order to advance the justice of the society to uh, address the antithesis of that that has been created to come to some new position so it's it's large scale ethics Right, and that it really is just a interesting microcosm, and probably something we have never seen before in the history of the world. Because if you're reading in your history book about, you know, during the time Hegel would live, you know, the the United States Revolution or the French Revolution or what whatever the case may be, um, you're distilling down to a couple paragraphs, um, right. years of history, and not only years of history, but um, very circumstantial, sub subjective history, right? You know, you had people who were documenting that during the time, um, but it was, it was through their own lens, and um, what things were getting recorded and not recorded was, um, was very spotty. But we tend to accept um, the written history as being sort of the final record. Um, what... what it could just happen, what currently happened, is different because the tools are in place to objectively look at the this historical event, right? Yes. There's, nobody's, yeah. there's nobody writing down with their own coloring um, or shading of the events. There's video evidence of what happened. There's um, pictorial evidence of what happened. There's, you can identify individual people and what they did. Yeah. Um, and then sort of extrapolate what sort of um, intentions were behind a movement with much more precision and detail than you ever could in the past. Well, yeah, um, but all, it, it, to some extent, but, but also what Hegel is saying is <clears throat> just like he would say that these are primary documents, this video evidence, uh, uh, pictorial evidence, I, I think he would say that, you have to read the letters of the people who are making the decisions to try to figure out what they were thinking, not to be swayed into their viewpoint, but to try to understand how that contributed to an event, a process that then had to have its own counter. How did that countering happen? Uh, what was leading to that? So no, no, no summation, summative of the history book is going to do that. The primary documents are going to do that. And, and but what, but I would, uh, 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 respond to that other point that you mentioned. It's not. It's not what they're saying. Essentially, what you, you know, the people don't color it with their words. Oh, they're coloring it with their words a lot when, when they're describing what they're doing and calling themselves patriots, and and they're trying to recast the the event 
um, or they're 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 expressing that virtual world in which they live that they think that this is somehow a patriotic act, um, and and so the the words are important to understand the geist of that particular cluster of people as and and now more than ever we are in a Hegelian kind of situation I think because of this constant bipolarity of our our in our own situation. When you've got 48% and 52%, uh, you've got a clear majority of people who elected a president who, who it, 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 the country clashes with itself on, well, was, was this, did this actually happen? Yes, it happened. The documentation shows it happened. The, the checks and cross-checks and cross-balances happened. The ir irrationality of, of, the attempt to cast it a different way is counter to is, is obviously it's counter to reason, and so Hegel I think would say we have to try to understand the difference between how people present themselves uh, and not take them at their word, but to look at what that event any given event how it has led to response change and a closer trip toward rationality and reason. Yeah, and, and like you were saying, it, it, our current context in America is um, it's never been more important than this. And like I was, we were painting the picture with Napoleon as a child earlier in the show, yeah, you know, about yeah, his yeah. background and his future and stuff. If you do the same thing, like we talked about, extrapolating it out for a nation state, like like Heigl would say we can, um, you know, and talking about the importance of, of the state documents and constitutions and things, um, you can look back at those historical documents and you can trace um, the logic behind certain movements. Um, and that's why re the relativistic view of the logic, which I'm not sure Heigl had, like we talked about. Right. Um, yeah, I wouldn't call him relativist. Right, and I, I might break with him there a little bit, because I think that there is some... You, let me... Alright, hear me out here. So, yep. logic, you know, you're, you're basing it off of contextual factors, background knowledge, all of these different things, cultural factors, all this, and then extrapolating it out. So, if we look at the United States, right? We've talked about um, our constitution, and there's there's blatantly um, racial things in elements of of, of our constitution. <laughs> um, and so, with that, and with contextual factors about the history of the country, um, and then where you grow up in the country, um, what sort of experiences you've had, um, the characters that have influenced your thinking um it, you might have fifty six thousand tweets of first um you know original documentation mm -hmm. of somebody they're following it's i don't think that one side or the other is acting necessarily illogically i think that there's a logic behind both polarizing movements yeah what we need to do and i think what like what you were saying what heigl is what heigl is saying is that um 
what he always said throughout his whole philosophy is that, okay, you have a, a thesis and you have an antithesis and neither one of those things exists of its own. You know, what the one requires the other. And when these things clash, there's an inevitable synthesis that happens. We haven't reached that point yet. We have the, the, the thesis and the antithesis. Both of these sides have a logic for why they believe what they believe. And I think on the, on the conservative end of the spectrum, on the right end of the spectrum, what you're looking at is the, um, the cultural um, precedents that have been set. If you look at other developed countries, um, they rewrite their constitutions on a regular basis. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's pretty normal to revise constitutions. In the U.S., there's this um, almost uh, cultish devotion to the founding fathers' words, um, which you know, it. If you have to look at it, you have to say, okay, well. They lived in a context. They lived with certain facts, um, certain influences, certain things mm-hmm. that are no longer no longer relevant. Yeah. That's not to say that they didn't arrive at certain inalienable truths about humanity. But right. the point is you have to take what things they stumbled upon that were good and applicable to human society, to government workings, and you have to discard the things that they were wrong about or were biased about and come up with a, a new system. Um, and in, in America, I think on the conservative end of the spectrum, they're completely unwilling to do that. There's, there's, this, um, there's this devotion to the original state of, of, of things. And then on the other hand, you have a progressive, a progressive side of things. Um, and so... I think what needs what needs to happen um, coming out of the, the recent events that we've had is I think that on the winning end, right? So I, there's there's a blue wave happening, right? People, as I think as Heigl would say, um, you know, logic and rationality is winning out by a, a razor thin margin <laughs> in yeah, the U.S. Yeah. But people are seeing um, what's happening, and at some level, they're saying. Um, nah, you know what? I, I'm just not going along with this. But what needs to happen is rather than these two sides isolating themselves now and trying to win over people to their side, I think what needs to happen is a critical examination of the under, other side and saying, okay, what does this side, what are they saying that makes sense, that has merit, and that can be integrated into my viewpoints of the world in order to progress society humanity into something that that is more you know bingo yeah i'm going to insert this because you've 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 you've, you've articulated this uh, very sharply he uh talked about the the sub subjectivity of the will Right and 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 uh, and so essentially, the, what is moral is not characterized uh, by being opposed to the immoral. It's it's or it's opposition to wrong or whatever the way we want to phrase it. Uh, morality and 
and immorality uh, are um, founded on the idea of the subjectivity of the will. Another way of putting this is what seems to be the will of a given people and how is it misconstrued or misapplied or abused used to wrong purpose uh if that's that's part of it uh, a, a, perhaps a simpler way uh, not simpler but a clearer way would be to use a theatrical uh term in theater one always uh, among many many other things asks what is the intention of the character well in in, in broader scope, he would say, what is the intention of this collective uh, asserting this particular thing? And one must try to understand that intention and then counter that intention if it needs countering with with reasonable with with reason, with with uh, argumentation which is which realizes itself eventually through physical acts. Um, so yeah, we we are at a moment when uh, yeah, certainly there's 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 uh, call and response. There is uh, uh, back and forth. There is uh, blame and counter blame. Uh, but there are things that are reasonably blame worthy from from a rational viewpoint uh, from actions taken. And one, but the goal, the harder part is to try to understand how that went, any particular thing went south, so to, so to speak. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, I think that something that, um, a part of it that may make more sense, you know, we've talked about how Heigl could be misconstrued as liking um, dictators or strongmen. Um, but I think that it's it's a little bit, it's different. It's not. It's not liking so much as if you're looking at the big picture and saying, "Okay, well, the human trajectory that is towards um, an ultimate rationality, or you know, or an ultimate um, logic." Well, then, really, as painful as a as a Trump, a Donald Trump may be, in some ways, it might be the best thing that can happen in terms of forging a synthesis, because this sort of extreme figure casts in relief and contrast other aspects of it. And I think that, you know, honestly, I think that you might be seeing it happen a little bit in the Republican Party. Because um, you're seeing certain individuals um, after this incident at the Capitol building. Um, there's, there's some people who were firmly in Trump's camp that after the events at the Capitol are saying, I don't support this. This isn't what I experienced. And there's some there's yeah. some of us that would say, well, how how could you not see this sort of thing as being something that could happen all along? Yes. But the fact is, they didn't. And now that it has happened, um, their view and their perspective on the entire movement could possibly be being changed in in regards to what happened. So right. I think that they did they didn't they didn't or, or they did see it, but it wasn't to their benefit at that moment. I mean, there, there's always that kind of thing too. But ultimately, the same is it can result in what you're describing. It can result in let's really think hard about what has happened here. And there are people who are just going on and saying the same thing. They're, they're just spouting the same things uh, today that they were spouting before it happened. 
which indicates no thought whatsoever going on. And then there are those who are saying, we, there, there have to be consequences. Um, mm. Not out of a sense of vengeance, but out of a sense of rationality. What do we, what do we, uh, if one teaches one's children that there are consequences for actions taken, and you have right at the top of the chain uh, actions called for uh, and, and, and hope to not have consequences for those actions, that can undermine the very moral, ethical fabric of any particular constitution. That's the crisis point here. If one says, oh, well, that just happened yeah, two days ago, and on we go, then we are in the deadliest point ever. Um, right. And right. any culture would be. Yeah, and I think that we also have to identify where to draw the line. Again, looking at extrapolating individual experiences into a, 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 an experience of the state, right? Yeah. Um, if you have a child um, and you have, you have to, you sort of have to delineate um, the difference between wrongdoing and, and a mistake, right? Yeah. Wrongdoing yeah. requires punishment, requires consequences. Yeah. Making a mistake merely requires a reflection and a new course of action. And so I think that that's what we need a little bit on both sides too, is for people to, um, to identify, listen, you know, it's very hard with religion or politics or, or personal issues to ever admit that you're wrong or that you made a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. But certain, certain, there's certain points where you can no longer deny it. Right. And I think that, um, it happens to us all. Maybe I take a test in school and I flunk it, right? That that tells me, okay, I thought I knew this, but I didn't. I need to yeah. reevaluate my thinking and my course of action. Um, maybe some of these people who were very strongly on one side or the other experience a political event that makes them say, you know what? I thought I understood what my political beliefs are, but now that I see the fruition of them, this is not what I want to believe. Um, I think that the key is with those people, um, we, we, we can't treat them the same as we're treating, um, people who are actually, um, perpetuating the, the yeah, crime against society, we, uh, you know, yeah. there needs which to be, way, uh, which is why you have to parse it, right? Or not parse it. You have to, you find the people who killed someone. You you find the people who broke and stole, um, and you follow the rational uh, prosecutorial uh, laws of of the country, but you apply those equally. You know, I, I think that the the the, irrational, the, the illogic. Uh, made manifest that is in in in, in event is, is is as clear as those photographs we've been seeing in contrast with police on multi tiers of 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 the, the Capitol building on steps uh, back when our uh, president was trying to clear the streets to walk across to to show a Bible with. Uh, a line of Capitol Police officers, essentially with no defensive capacities whatsoever, and hours and hours of not having anyone move in to do anything about it, and a military that 
uh, uh, is is uh, conversation is quoted as uh, the you know the police the uh, capital police calling for help and and the military said you need help yes uh, you we need to think but we the military responding uh, but we need to think about the optics of this so rather than reasonable action um, then the the intention becomes what it looks like rather than what is and that's i think that's where hegel i would uh, rather arrogantly assert that that's probably the kind of level of conversation he would be applying to this incident uh, 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 to any incident what is the overall large picture what is what is the what is the result of individual intentions that, that build up into a a, a large snowball coming down the, to create an avalanche. What is the intention of the avalanche, um, and 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 how is that to be addressed in a counter argument? Right. right. Yeah. So I mean, we've covered a lot of ground here, and you know, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it's one of those things where I mean, we're just looking at. Okay. Um, like you said, there's there's intentions. Um, there's also a lot of of background um, information that goes into how parties make um, logical decisions, and um, yeah. and, and re- most importantly, um, and and we're at a crux point in history for this is how are these two sides eventually going to synthesize what is meritorious about their various arguments, and how are they going to shed? Um, beliefs that are are counterproductive to the the propagation of the society you know and we don't have those answers yet because people at this point are refusing to have the conversations um so hopefully we're on the cusp of of a new era in in american history where we start to start to get to those points but I hope um, so. I mean one of the things that he said joel i want to toss this in because it's sort of uh, i think it pulls it together in translation, the history of the world is none other than the progress of the consciousness of freedom. <laughs> and then a whole lot of verbiage after that about, but the progress is not steady, step-by-step, gentle. <laughs> um, no, it's a lurch. It's a right. wrenching lurch. And and what sort of logic you're using to determine freedom, especially in the United States? Are you looking at um, freedom in terms of um, capabilities for all people? Or are you looking at freedom in terms of um, things that a majority group has had access to that they are losing access to in order to, you know, fulfill a, a greater mandate? And when a state, when a collective of people do not understand the very definitions of freedom that are embedded in a constitution. And I, and I think it would be fair to say that all, all of us have misconceived notions about what freedom we actually have until we actually read the document and think about it and, and discuss it. It's, it's, there's a discussion going on this very morning about the fact that, that one, of the, uh, uh, one of the folks, Stephen Hawley, uh, or Hawley, Last name Holly, the uh, young, youngish guy who's been trying to assert himself for a candidacy for Republican presidency in 2024, and has been trying to block, you know, to, to, to de, um, 
delegitimize the the votes and so on. But they have a book coming out. The publishers can't uh, you know, is uh, rescinded the contract <laughs> for his book, and he's jawboning right now about all of this. See, this is the cancel culture. But you see, no publishers get to publish what they want. It's a capitalistic. <laughs> it always has been. Now we're in a world where he can go on self-publish his own book, but he he clearly wants the the stamp of that particular publisher on it, and that particular publisher has determined that because of the actions taken of the word said, they no longer can align themselves with or underwrite the words. That isn't cancel culture. That is a, 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 a decision uh, taken by editors and, and, a, and a board saying, nope, this is not good for our publishing house, but we don't understand. If we just say, "Well, that's canceled," all oh, his freedom of speech has been has been set upon. No, it hasn't. It hasn't in the least. He has many other ways of doing that. Right, and again, we're we're talking about the the patterns that scale up. Right, um, the Constitution wanted to guarantee um, these these freedoms of speech and and so forth, freedoms of press and whatnot, to individuals. Um, but we've talked about in the past as well how businesses are, are considered individuals as well. So you have a collective of people um, whose uh, stakeholders are allowed to determine what sort of things they want their company to stand for, what sort of things. And so it, it continues to scale up. Yeah. But what the United States guarantees is that individuals like you and I right now, we have a podcast, we have a platform to reach people. Are we going to reach as many people as if as if we were um, endorsed by NPR and put on the radio. No, no, absolutely not. But the fact is, nobody can come in here and tell us to shut down production on our podcast because we're saying something that they don't like. You know, precisely, precisely. Um, so yeah, I mean, so it's been a great conversation. We covered a lot of stuff. It's going to open a lot of avenues for future discussions that I'm looking forward to. But um, until next time, keep pondering.